Thank you. Thank you so much. It is such a privilege to open up God's Word. And we're continuing our series in Galatians. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29 is our passage this morning. It's very tightly packed, so in due course, I'll be working through it uh, little by little. But the big picture, the big message from the passage today is that we have a very special family history, okay? Family history. I don't know about you, I love, I love family history. One of my favorite TV programs is Who Do You Think You Are? Anybody else watch that? Yeah? A few people, one hand at the back. If you like social history, if you're interested in people, it's a, it's a wonderful program. So who do you think you are? It's a very good question, actually, to be asked this morning. That's the kind of question that we're digging into today. Actually, a few years back, I had a, a surprise email from a distant cousin in Australia who said that they'd researched the Wilfew family name, and she sent me a 120-page document tracing our family just back to 1741. It was only, only to there, and it was quite fascinating. I, I wish I had time to tell you about it. No famous names until we got to Phil Wilfew. That was the only famous name I could find in the thing. Now, this morning, whatever your family history looks like, uh, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have another family history. And it is the most illustrious family history. That's what we're looking into, digging into today. It's so important to know what's gone before, who we are, where our roots are, for us to understand how we act today, who we are today. So that's what we're looking at in the passage before us this morning. But I need to give a very brief recap, first of all, as we always do. Amen. As we go through this passage, you've always got to have a recap just to get up to tune. So, the epistle is written to the Galatian churches. That's not one church. Several, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. These churches had been pioneered by Paul and Barnabas. But when they moved on in this first missionary journey... Others arrived after them with a very different agenda. And this became a pattern. Wherever the apostles went, their work was undermined. And the name that's usually given to the people who were undermining their teaching is Judaizers. Because these people were coming in and they were teaching, yes, you start the Christian life by faith in Jesus. But after that... You have to obey Jewish law fully, whether you are a Jew or a non-Jew. You are obliged to fulfill Jewish law. And that wasn't just living a moral life. That was men, you have to be circumcised. Everybody, you have to fulfill dietary laws. You have to go to the, uh, the, the general feasts year by year. You have to sacrifice in the temple and, and so on. And Paul was absolutely horrified because, you see, this isn't just a small skirmish. This is a battle for the very heart of the gospel. And that's why the, the, he writes this letter to the Galatian churches. Now, last week, <clears throat> we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, where Paul calls the Galatian believers foolish for believing this legalistic stuff. He says, you've traded life in the spirit for a bunch of rules and regulations. You've traded grace, 
for legalism. No, no, he says. Jesus died to finish with all that. He died on the cross to remove that heavy weight from you. Now, it's about, a, about grace from beginning to end. And to press this home, in verses 7 to 9 of last week's chapter, last week's portion, he explains, listen, faith Faith has always been what God's been looking for, always. It's faith that pleases God. He wants people to trust him. When you trust God, it shows that you think God is trustworthy. Is that how you feel? Is that what you believe? Because that's the basis of your life if you put your faith in, in the living God. And, and Paul says, consider Abraham. And that's such a key for us flowing into the passage that we have before us this morning. He says, consider Abraham. Abraham was accepted by God on the basis of faith, not rules. And he says, and when you, the Galatians, first put your faith in Jesus, that was what God was looking for as well. It was what God was looking for, Abraham, and it's what God is looking for from you. And you immediately, he says, became part of Abraham's faith family. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you actually inherited his family history. And that's, that's where we are today. We have a family history that goes right back to Abraham believing in God because God's family is made up of people who've put their trust in him. Therefore, we're his children. Now, You'll see from the passage before us, from 15 to 18, that our family history, that means you, that means me, if you put your faith in Jesus, begins with a promise to Abraham. It begins with a promise. Now, the question is, what was the promise? And the answer is, in, in general, the promise was, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That was the promise God made to Abraham. Abraham was very old at the time. His wife was barren. She wasn't able to have children. And God comes along and says, Abraham, Sarah, you are going to have a mighty, mighty bunch of offspring. And he didn't just tell him. He said, come out at night and look at the stars. How many can you see? Count them, Abraham. And he couldn't. This is a glimpse, he says, of your future offspring. You can't count them. There are so many. This is my promise to you, Abraham. You are going to have nations come out of you. And the sheer wonder and the sheer beauty and the sheer majesty of the sight awakened something in Abraham, something deep in him, and he believed God. And God said, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those who believe me against all the odds. Abraham, you're old. Your wife is barren, but you believe me. I love that. That's what God loves. He loves us to trust him. God, you are trustworthy. Whatever things look like, I believe you. And this wasn't a random promise from God. God had something awesome in mind. When he made that promise to Abraham, he had a mighty worldwide family of faith in mind. Look around you. We are the answer to that promise. A mighty worldwide family. 
You see, sin had created this huge gulf between the human race and God. And God was saying, right, I'm going to start again, and I'm starting with one man of faith. One man who believes me. And he even changed that name's man, that, that, that name, that, the name of that man, from Abram, which is exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many, father of multitudes, father of nations. And so both the sky and night, imagine he goes out at night in the desert sky and he looks up and every day, every night he's reminded of the promise of God. And his name, every time people say his name, Abraham, it's a reminder of the covenant promise of God. Imagine, imagine this for the moment. My name is John, which means beloved of God. My surname is Wilthew, and the origin of that means one who snatches victory out of the battle. That's a pretty good surname to have. Now, I want you to picture a breakfast table in the Wilthew household, and my wife turns to me and she says, pass the cornflakes, beloved of God, who snatches victory out of the battle. Every morning. Imagine her saying that. What will that do to me? It will give me a mighty boost. It will remind me who I am in God. Today I'm going to be the beloved of God who snatches victory out of the battle. Now go back to the very beginning. Sarah, at the breakfast table, pass the cornflakes, father of multitudes. Every time his name is mentioned, it's a reminder of the covenant promise of God. In you shall all the nations be blessed. And Abraham's offspring would not only be blessed, they'd be a blessing to every nation on earth. God wants that kind of family of every, every people group. And this promise, this wonderful promise, was never withdrawn. And this brings us into our passage this morning, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. When you purchase a property, once those documents are signed, sealed and delivered, that's it. The documents, once, once they're done like that, the agreement is binding. And God makes an agreement with Abraham and it's binding. And if you like, the birth of Isaac, his son, by Sarah, if you like, is the deposit that guarantees the delivery of the full final payment. I love that. Verse 16, and now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Now this sounds a bit strange to us, but it's basically the Jewish rabbi in Paul coming out. He knows very well that the Hebrew word for offspring can mean a plural. But here, he's arguing that God's promise had one particular offspring in mind. If you like, the offspring par excellence of Abraham, Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, he is the perfectly faithful offspring of Abraham. There's only going to be one. And he is going to fulfill all that Israel failed to be and failed to do. That's, that's a wonderful reminder. Our family history is rooted in God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled in one faithful person, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, this is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. Now, when researching family trees, the genealogist has to look back as far as, as, as he can, as far as possible in the official records. But Paul is saying to uh, the Galatians, you know, these false teachers who are coming along, they've only taken ancestry back to Moses. And they're saying you've got to obey the, the Mosaic law. But I can take you further back. I can take you back to Abraham. And Abraham didn't have Torah. He didn't have Jewish law. God accepted him on a completely different basis. It was the basis of, of faith. Living by faith in God's word is the distinguishing mark of this family. And it always has been, and it still is. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And a promise here is a gift. It's not something to be earned by obedience to 613 laws given on the Mount Sinai. Now, it's been mentioned, my, it was my birthday yesterday. I'm wearing my wife's birthday gift this morning. When she gave it to me, she didn't say, John, here's the gift, but first of all, it is conditional on a bunch of chores I've written up for you. There are 613 of them, and the first 10 are the most important, but nevertheless, get on with it, and then you can have your jumper. That would be totally ridiculous. Our family history at the very heart is about a gift. It's a gift of promise. There's a gift of grace. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 is, of course, a, a wonderful exposition of that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So our family history begins with a promise to Abraham from God. And, and it's really important that we understand this, that our family history is rooted in God's faithfulness, not ours. That's the solid ground that we stand on. The solid ground is not your faith and it's not your faithfulness. If it was, if it was my faith or my faithfulness, then I tell you, the ground would crumble under me. The solid ground is God's faithfulness. I fail. Sometimes my faith fails. Abraham's faith failed. At times he went off course, but God's faithfulness was there. That was the solid ground. I'm asking you this morning, God is actually asking you, are you standing on solid ground? Because the solid ground is God's faithfulness, his absolute covenant faithfulness to his promises to you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> One clap. But secondly, we've, we've looked at Abraham being in our family history, but what about Moses? Well, Moses also has his place in our family history. Both Abraham and Moses were mighty men of faith. Both are listed among the faith heroes in Hebrews 11. But the teachers who are causing havoc amongst the Galatian churches have made Moses' name synonymous with legalism because he was the intermediary when the Jewish law was given on Mount Sinai. But Moses was not a legalist. 
Moses loved God. Moses walked with God. Moses spent intimate time with God. He was the friend of God. He came from the presence of God with his, his face glowing. He had to cover his face. His, his face glowed so much. Moses was a, a wonderful man of God, of intimacy with the Lord. But what about the law then? Paul explains the purpose of the law, where it fits in our family history, by answering two questions. And the first is in verses 19 and 20. Why then the law? What part did it play? Was it a useless diversion? Was it a bit of an experiment by God that failed? No, says God, it is Paul. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Jewish law was never a ladder that you climb up to heaven. It was preparing the way for grace. The law showed Israel, and it actually shows us just how sinful we are. It shows us how far short we fall from the holiness of God. He is utterly holy and we are just so far removed from that. And you see, you need to understand that before you realize you need a savior. You need to realize how sinful you are before you cry out to God, please forgive me, have mercy upon me. And that, says Paul, is one of the key functions of the law. The law was never going to bring about the promise fulfillment of blessing on all the nations. That was never its purpose. It was a temporary necessity given through an intermediary until the coming of Jesus. The second question is in verse 21. So after why then the law, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Are Abraham and Moses somehow in conflict with one another? Are they in the boxing ring, if you like, in the blue corner, Abraham, man of promise, in the red corner, Moses, man of law. Paul says, certainly not. You could translate that, perish the thought. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul's saying, look, there is no contradiction. There was nothing wrong with the law itself. It was, it was good in itself, and it was for Israel's good. But it was never a life giver. You will never get life from the law. It had another function altogether. And he explains really helpfully what that function is by using the illustration of a custodian. Look at verses 22 to 25. But the scripture, that is the written law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In a well-off household in Paul's time, a servant called a paedagogos, a guardian, a custodian, was entrusted with bringing up the boys in the family from the age of six until late adolescence. And his job was twofold. First of all, 
He had to keep guard over them. In fact, the word that's translated in prison in the text that we've just read literally meant to protect by military guard. And it was actually used to describe siege cities where the enemy was kept out and the inhabitants were kept inside the walls for their own safety. And so Paul is saying God's law acted like that. It was for the people's safety. It restrained God's people. It checked their waywardness. It prevented them from going completely off track. It prevented them from plunging into the depravity of other nations. So that was one of the functions of the law. It was a custodian to keep the people safe. But secondly, the paedagogos was to put discipline into the boys. He taught them morals and he corrected them when they misbehaved. And to do that, he carried a stick. And the paedagogos used the stick freely. He, he, he would use it regularly on the boys to make sure that he disciplined them. And you can imagine when they came to adulthood and they waved goodbye to the paedagogos, they breathed a sigh of relief. That's the last time I need to come under the stick of my guardian. And Paul says that's exactly what happens with the law. The 613 laws given at Sinai provided strict discipline but they were never intended to be a permanent feature. They were temporary. They represented an interim stage. That's so important because living by rule keeping today is to go back. It's a backward step. You're going back under a paedagogos. You're living again hemmed in by rules and regulations. And you're also being whacked regularly by the law with a stick. You know, even today, many, many Christians understand absolutely that they're saved by grace. No, no, no doubt about that at all. And yet they live by performance. And that's why we're studying the letter. God's kingdom is one of grace. You know, it, it is actually tragic that many, many Christians go around feeling like they're condemned, feeling like... They're falling short because they're still living under law. And it's not their fault usually. It's usually false teaching. It's falsely bad leadership. And that's what was happening in the churches in Galatia. As soon as you cry out to God for mercy, as soon as you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only receive grace, you stand in grace. Romans chapter 5 verse 2 is probably one of the most important verses you can learn and recite, memorize in Scripture. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is your new position in the Christian life is not about, about, about performance. It's about your position. You're now standing in the grace of God. God doesn't want you to perform for him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to trust him. Going back under law is actually a sign of immaturity. 
God wants us to be mature, to be men and women living from within by the Holy Spirit. Our minds are being renewed. We're growing to maturity in Christ. Now, when we sin, we're idiots, we're fools when we sin because we're, we're no longer slaves to sin. We can say no to sin. The Spirit of God is in us. We have power over sin. And so this is the kind of life that we live in, in, in Christ. If, if you feel like, hey, my life has been blighted by bad teaching, which has led to legalism, then know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This morning, let the truth of God's word set you free from any, that, any kind of performance-based life. So our family tree includes Abraham, who received a covenant promise, and Moses, who's the intermediary, in the giving of God's law. But they're not the standout names, are they? The standout name in our family history is Jesus. And so thirdly, Jesus. Jesus is the name above every name in our family history. It's through Jesus that that covenant promise to Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's through Jesus that that comes to fulfillment and now the way is open for everybody whoever they are whatever our backgrounds whatever our culture whatever the color of our skin to come into God's family and be part of Abraham's family history for in Christ Jesus verse 26 you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's enough for a whole series in itself, that, uh, that couple of verses. We're now part of God's worldwide royal family. We've been plunged into Christ. We now carry the family likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, this was such a radical manifesto. Men and women are equal. There are no superior races. Everyone is of infinite worth. I mean, that was dangerous teaching in the first century because Rome was built on the very opposite of that. The Roman Empire was built, first of all, on crushing other nations into submission by military might. Their slave system was basically the equivalent of our electricity supply. It just kept everything, everything working. Five to ten million slaves in the Roman Empire. And so whenever there was any hint of insurrection, it was brutally uh, put down. And the entire culture of the Roman world was male-dominated. Men ruled supreme in the Roman world. Women had very few rights. They were the property of first their fathers and secondly their husbands. And so the Christian, the Christian radical manifesto just undermines everything that Rome stood for. God's family was going to be different. It needs to be different. It needs to be not just a little bit different today. We need to be so radically different that men and women say, wow, that is actually counterculture, the way that those people live. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You know, it is easy to miss how significant that was in the explosive growth 
of the early church because obviously the church grew rapidly first of all because now everybody all nations could be part of it wherever you go now wherever you travel in the world you will find brothers and sisters a few years ago I had the real privilege of, of, of visiting China with a couple of colleagues and we were there to minister to the underground church in a time of severe persecution. It was a time of great danger for the leaders of the underground church right in the heart of, of China. And we landed at, the, uh, at an airport deep in, in the heart of China to find a teeming with security police. And we knew this would be a very dangerous moment for the leaders who were actually there uh, in that airport lounge to meet us and take us away uh, into to our destination. And so I find myself uh, suddenly in the, in the airport lounge, separated from my colleagues. Where have they gone? I don't know. Suddenly somebody snatches my bag from my hand and runs off with it. And I suddenly see him exiting into the car park. What do I do? Well, I follow him. He's got my bag. So I, f I follow him into the car park. It is pitch black. It is nighttime. I see the figure disappearing towards the end of the car park behind a big parked van. So I go back. I go as far as I can. I turn around the van. And he's standing there waiting for me, holding my bag. And this is what he says. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. It was a family word. And I knew immediately, he's my brother in Christ. That was all we knew. We didn't have a, each other's language. We lived world apart. And yet he knew, and I knew, that we were family. We belonged in the family of God. Brothers and sisters, look around you this morning. This is the family of God. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. In you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Through whom? through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find the same when it came to the slave trade. The slave system in, in, in the Roman Empire just enveloped pretty well every profession. Yes, there was the harsh treatment of the lowest form of slaves, but often many professionals like doctors or administrators were also part of the slave class and, and artisans, tradespeople, Trusted domestic servants, all were part of the slave class. And hundreds of thousands came into the church right from the very beginning. And so Paul had to address them when he wrote his, his epistles. They were sitting alongside masters and the well-connected and the wealthy. There's no underclass in the church family. We're all equal we are on level ground before the cross of Christ. There is a wonderful little statement on our church website. Our church website reads like this. In fact, I think it's so important we should read it all together. If we can put it on the, on the screen for us. This is what it says. It's coming. Here it is. Now, in your best loud voice, let's all say this together, shall we? In 1989, kings are... It's, it's not good enough. We need much bigger than that. You can do so much better. Let's start again. In 1989, King's Arms Project was created to love and serve the homeless in this town. In 1992, King's Arms was launched with a vision to be a church who radically follow and worship Jesus, welcoming those on the margins 
of society. Do you know, it is it's possible to start out like that and then become safe and soft and respectable and to lose your radical edge. Isn't that possible? And God wants to say to us this morning, stay radical. Don't lose that edge. Let's remain committed to the vulnerable. The more we do, the more we look like Jesus, who came as a servant and gave himself as a ransom for all. And the early church also grew at a huge rate because the gospel was such good news for women as well as men. Women were part of Jesus' disciples as they traveled around. Women were at the cross while the men were hiding. A woman was the first to actually testify that Jesus is alive. Women poured into the early church and they had a position of love and respect that was unknown in the Roman world in the, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. Young girls were not forced into marriage with middle-aged men. Single women, widows, were treated with respect and provision was made for them. Husbands were to lay down their lives for their, for their wife. Men in the church were, to to, were told to treat older women like mothers and younger women with all purity. I mean, there is such a, a radical culture. Women were safe in the early church. No wonder they flocked in, but they weren't just safe. They were fully involved in the early church. They brought their gifts. There were, there were women who made huge, huge contributions in the life of the church. They advanced the gospel. Paul talks about women being part of his pioneering teams as their church plant. He mentions their names so often at the end of his letters. Is it any wonder that Christian values attracted women in large numbers. I, I was amazed when I first read uh, Rodney Stark's book. He's a secular social historian. And he estimated in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that by the year 300 AD, there were over 6 million believers in the Roman Empire, and that was 10% of the total population. Now, this is a secular social historian. He says, actually, that represented a 40% growth rate per decade, and that was during times of persecution. That is extraordinary growth. And you know what it was? It was the fulfillment of promise. It was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the covenant promise that is now fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our family history, brothers and sisters. This is God's big story, and we have a part in it. We are now on the stage in this wonderful play that is God's big story. It is so important. We've got a role to play. We look back over our shoulders to make sure that we're in tune with the rest of the story. We look back at the key, the key moment in, this, in the play when Jesus comes and, the, and the, the launch of the kingdom of God. And we say, right now, now's my time. Now's our time as the people of God. Who are we to be? How are we to take the advance of the kingdom forward? Final verse, verse 29. If we are Christ's, then we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's a kind of succinct overview of what we've just been looking at, but it's got one final punch. And the final punch is in the conditional clause, if, 
if we are Christ's. And this morning, the last thing I want to say to you is that God wants you to be absolutely sure that this is your family history. He really does. It's really important. One day, God will unfurl a very long scroll revealing his full family tree. And it'll contain, it'll contain all the names of those who've put their faith in him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to be called, the book of Revelation tells us, the Lamb's Book of Life. Everybody who comes by faith to Jesus as their Savior, his name, her name is written in that family tree that God unfurls. And the big question is, will my name be there? Will your name be there? I ask you that this morning. Will your name be there? There is no more important question in life because the Bible says it affects your eternal destiny. If you're not sure, this morning make sure you can. It's a very simple thing. Coming by faith in Jesus. God, I trust you that you came in the person of Jesus. I don't understand it all, but I believe you. I believe you're trustworthy. My life is yours now. I'm going to give myself to you. And then you're able to say, wow, this is my family history too. Amen.